Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. You're certainly welcome to it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Lauren. And uh, I'm Ben. And uh, we gather here to talk about the history of the modern heathen movement, the good, the bad, the ugly. And the downright surreal. Which gets really surreal mm-hmm. sometimes. So, Ben, what are we talking about tonight? Well, one of the things that uh, I wanted to say is we got a correction sent to us from uh, one of our listeners, uh, one of about three. And we were doing one a while back about the history of Wicca, and we had to discuss someone uh, whose name we pronounced uh, Alistair Crowley, because, of course, we knew about him from that Ozzy Osbourne song. And uh, we got a message saying apparently his name was actually Crowley. So, yeah, it's not not Crowley. Uh, So we can't sing uh, Mr. Crowley anymore because his name was actually Crowley. We can sing, you know, Crowley, Crowley, Crowley. So uh, apologies to my uh, my uh, friends over in the OTO in, in Memphis. Right, <laughs> and apologies to the spirit of uh, Mr. Crowley. Uh, we'll try to get it right uh, next time. Please stop ringing my doorbell. <laughs> so... Tonight, or today, whenever you're listening, it's tonight for us, whenever you're listening to this, we are talking about the Indo-European. That's right, the Indo-Europeans. I just want to throw this out here, Mark, from uh, Avax and Plow, our, our good friend, this is for you, because I know you've been bugging me to do this. So, shout out. And if you haven't listened to uh, the, the Plow Share, which is his podcast, which is Bite Sides Heathenry, from an Anglo-Saxon point of view, go check that out. All right. So. We will take you back to 1757, when England and France are jockeying for global supremacy, uh, fighting a number of wars, including one on what would later be U.S. soil, called the French and Indian War. They're also duking it out in India. And in 1757, forces under the control of the British East India Company defeated French forces outside Calcutta, in eastern India at the Battle of Plassey, and the British East India Company essentially takes over and starts running the place. And naturally, uh, they set up courts, including a Supreme Court of Bengal. And in 1783, they appointed a gentleman by the name of Sir William Jones to be a judge on the Supreme Court of Bengal. This would be a fairly momentous occasion Jones already knew uh, 20-odd languages. Would you call him a poly-polyglot? Yeah, that will work. A poly-polyglot. A dodeca-polyglot? A um, mucho-glot? Yes. (laughs) All right. Uh, He knew Persian. He knew Arabic. He knew Hebrew. He knew Greek and Latin. He knew uh, Welsh. I believe he was Welsh. And, of course, he knew English, and he knew a slew of others but unfortunately found that he didn't know Sanskrit. And this was necessary for him because India, of course, had its traditional code of laws, the laws of Manu, going back thousands of years. Manu, Manu. Manu, Manu. Yeah. And they were in uh, the Sanskrit language, uh, which he at first did not know. And at first, nobody wanted to teach it to him, but he found a local pundit, uh, which originally meant a member of a, a learned uh, social class that was responsible for, you know, knowing stuff. That's what pandit originally meant. And he found a local pandit to teach him Sanskrit. And by about 1786, he figured he'd got along pretty well. And he was able to read the laws of Manu. And dang it, now I'm going to always want to be saying Manu, Manu. <laughs> Thanks for putting that in my head. For those of you don't know that joke, you're probably young, and Mm -hmm. go ask your parents about um, Nanu Nanu. Yes. So on February 2nd, 1786, Jones made a presentation to the Asiatic Society of Bengal, and uh, he made the discovery, and it turns out he was not the absolute first to make it, but for some reason he gets most of the credit. White male. 
No, there was another white guy earlier than that who had made the same discovery, but for some reason it didn't take. You find this a lot. There's always forerunners. For everybody who invents something, there's always somebody who got there first but didn't manage to get it over the hump, as it were. Gotcha. So Jones gives his presentation in 1786 with the discovery that the Sanskrit language was hauntingly similar in vocabulary and even in points of grammar to a number of languages that Jones already knew. As he put it, the Sanskrit language, whatever be its antiquity, is of a wonderful structure, more perfect than the Greek, more copious than the Latin, and more exquisitely refined than either, yet bearing to both of them a stronger affinity, both in the roots of verbs and the forms of grammar, than could possibly have been produced by accident. So strong indeed that no philologer, that's a linguist, could examine them all three without believing them to have sprung from some common source, which perhaps no longer exists. And he goes on to say that he thinks that Persian and what he calls Gothic, which I think was actually Old Norse, and Celtic, again, he knew Welsh, that all of these also look like they came from the same uh, common ancestor. And this is considered to be, you know, as much as anything, the birthday of the field of historical linguistics, where you try to look at languages as things that have evolved over time and that come from common ancestors, which you can learn something about by comparative studies. So I find it interesting that he really tried to interpret this. Of course, this is the lens that he knew mm -hmm. through biblical terms. So all these languages were Hamitic mm -hmm. or descendants of Noah's second son, Ham. Um, with, if, you know, if you know your Bible, although I wouldn't expect our audience to be... Not all, everyone was a Bible drill champion like me. Okay. Uh, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Shem is the ancestor of the Semitic people, that's uh, Israelites and Arabs. There was debate as to what Ham and Japheth had given rise to. And the usual interpretation of the Bible is that Ham was the ancestor of the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and uh, the Africans, basically, and that Japheth had gone on to be the father of everybody in Europe. For example, Japheth had a grandson named Ashkenaz, who was considered to be the ancestor of uh, Germans. So if you hear about Ashkenazic Jews, they call themselves that because they're in the lands settled by Ashkenaz, uh, Japheth's grandson, or at least that's the way the story goes. Jones changed it up a little bit and claimed that all of these languages that descended from a common ancestor must be the Hamitic languages, leaving poor Japheth to only be the father of some people off in Siberia somewhere. But he certainly fit this into a biblical model because at the time there hadn't been a great deal of criticism of the literal accuracy of the Bible, at least on this point. You work with the structure you have. Yeah, you work with what you've got. And at the time he saw no particular reason to doubt the historical truth of the Bible, certainly of the biblical flood and of Noah's kids. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out here. Something that he put forth was that Chinese, Japanese, and Native American civilizations might all be Hamitic, or Hamitic, however mm -hmm. you want to pronounce it. And that makes me wonder if a certain other religious founder in uh, the 1800s might have seen this and gotten some ideas, and that, of course, would be Joseph Smith, oh. who called the Native Americans the uh, children of Ham. Right. There had been... I know there had been a lot of speculation as to where on earth the Native Americans could possibly have come from. Smith was not the first to claim that they must be the ten lost tribes of Israel. But it's 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 it's, it's an interesting kind of thing that happened, you know, fifty years before. So it's entirely possible. But right. Although bear in mind, in 1784, I don't think a lot of Europeans knew a lot of Native American languages. There were there were some, right. but. I don't think that full diversity had uh, even begun to be explored. No, definitely not. You had uh, 
really you this is when you start seeing the where they start bringing over Native Americans and they kind of become a society. It was considered like I know in England around this time and a little later into the Regency, having a, a Native American, it was always a Native American princess, even though most of them weren't, at your little gathering that you were having was a big deal. It was a, a sign of, like, your status. But definitely, you know, he went through, and so it looks like in 1784, he wrote on the gods of Greece, Italy, and India. Right. Uh, by this time, he'd learned something more about Indian religion, specifically the very ancient text called the Vedas. Uh, there's the Rig Veda, the Atharva Veda, um, and the Darth Veda. I knew that was coming. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of predictable there. <laughs> yeah, I knew that one was coming. And the Vedas had a sky god by the name of Dyaus, which is closely related to the word for sky, and he's sometimes called Dyaus Pita. Uh, meaning Diaus father, Father Diaus. And Jones noted that Diaus Pita and Jupiter, uh, the Roman god of the sky and lightning and all of that, were quite similar. And so was the Greek word Zeus, Zeus, Diaus, and Ju-Pitar might all be related uh, to each other, implying that not just had there been a common ancestral language, but a common ancestral culture who worships some god whose name would have been something like Dios Pachter. And I like this quote here. He thought that the ancient Hamites shared us with the Semites the knowledge of one god, but were ensnared by, and this is such a great thing, gross idolatrous errors in every part of the pagan world. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to wear, I need that on a t-shirt. Gross idolatrous errors? errors. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've known a couple of our fellow idolaters who could be a little bit gross. I just think that's probably what, like, my Christian family probably thinks of me, so mm-hmm. I feel like I need it on a shirt. But Right, right. So we're going to move fast forward to 1813. Right. fellow by the name of Thomas Young, who's been called the last man who knew everything. He was a scientist. He was a linguist. He gets a share of the credit, along with a French guy named Champollion, for deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics. He did a lot. And by about 1813, people are beginning to question just to what extent you can take the Old Testament of the Bible as historical truth, at least the older parts of it. And it's starting to look a little bit passé to argue whether this ancestral language could possibly be produced by Shem or by Ham or by Japheth. And so Thomas Young coins the term that we use to this day, Indo-European, because descendants of this language are spoken all over Europe and are spoken in India as well at least in the northern part of India and also some nearby areas like uh, Armenia, for example. Is that where the Armenian runes come from? Evidently it is. Okay. (laughs) Okay, for the record, as far as I know, there are no Armenian runes, but we once went to this talk at Pagan Pride Day by a very enthusiastic speaker who claimed he'd discovered the Armenian runes. What I think he meant was the Armanan runes, which we'll actually talk about coming up in a couple of episodes. So that God, that was like almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're old. So he coined that. So then, so we're going to rewind a little. Uh, we're going to talk about French scholar Abraham Hyacinth. Abraham Hyacinth Anquetil Duperon. The dupes. That's what I'm going to call him. Okay, the dupes, the dupes if you must. Uh, was studying Old Persian, the language in which the religious text of the Zoroastrian religion is written in, called the Avesta. And he noted that the Old Persian term for themselves was Aryanam, and it matched a Persian term recorded by the Greeks, who had had a big battle with the Persians back in 300-something-something B.C. The Greeks called the Persians Arioi, And Jones had also found the term Arya in Indian laws. And so the Persians are the Aryanam, the Indians are Arya, and Anquetil Duperon, 
the dupes, if you like. Yes, the dupes. Yeah, the dupes. Uh, yeah, this was a real hazard. Oh, oh. Sorry, folks. That's another TV show that I'm gonna. Yeah, millennial whippersnappers probably never saw. Just a good old boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, so he's the first to coin the the word Aryan in at least in modern European languages. And the German scholar uh, who was crazy about this stuff by the name of Friedrich Schlegel claimed that Aria had survived in German as the word Echa, uh, E-H-R-E, which means honor, which is similar to noble, etc., etc. And from then on, people started using Aryan as a synonym for this language family and the ancient people that spoke it. So, Ben, I just want to just rewind here. So what you're telling me is that Aryan meant a language family of people who were essentially from what one might term Southeast Asia and the Middle East? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Good now, to know. In the 19th century, they thought that Aryan, you know, the Germans were Aryans because the Germans have this word, Echa. And it was claimed, although we now don't think this is true, that the name of Ireland, you know, Ira, must also come from Aria. So Arian came to be used to mean the speakers ancient and modern of these Indo-European languages. And of course, it's gone on from there to have other connotations. Other connotations. Today, you really shouldn't use it because the other connotations are, have kind of poisoned the word. You still see it sometimes being used just for those languages that are spoken in North India and Persia, Persian and Sanskrit and uh, Hindi and Urdu and Bengali and Punjabi. And it's ironic that by this usage, the only Aryans in Europe are the Romani people. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nice little bit of irony right there. So, and one of the oldest meanings of that, of course, was one who follows religious laws. So there was zero, like, European racial connotations to it at that point. Yeah, this is in, uh, there's a really good book on all of this called The Horse, the Wheel, and Language by David Anthony. And he points out that if you go digging down in the Vedas, there is mention of people who are said to be Aryan, uh, but whose names are not in a Proto-European language. They're not Sanskrit names. They're presumably names in the language of earlier inhabitants of India. And the meaning of it just simply seems to be somebody who follows religious laws. You know, somebody who, you know, does the rituals right was an Aryan, and it does not originally have anything to do with, with race uh, or particularly with, uh, you know, German honor, Echa, and all that. That word actually comes from a different, uh, different root. I actually had to look this up the other day. The original root it comes from would have been something like Aizo in Proto-Germanic. So there. So there. Right. But especially if you go into older books, you'll find Aryan thrown around an awful lot. And it does undergo this kind of semantic shift from just people who speak Indo-European languages to us proper kind of what people. So we so we're going to move on and talk about the Brothers Grimm, who I would say of all the people we're going to talk about, these are probably the... I would say our audience is most familiar with with, uh, the Brothers Grimm because of fairy tales. Right. They collect all of these fairy tales, and people sometimes think, oh, they just love children, and we're trying to collect entertaining and instructive stories for children that Disney would one day be able to make into movies without paying them royalties. But in fact, they were very serious linguists. They were students of German history and culture, Uh, We'll have a lot more to say about them in the next episode, but suffice it to say that in the early 1800s, there's this upsurge of awareness of German identity, shall we say. And the Brothers Grimm were trying to get to the real ancient roots of the German people and use them to inspire the German people 
uh, in the present day. And so they did things like start work on the definitive dictionary of the German language, which finally got finished in about 1965. Uh, took them 120 years to do it, although, to be fair, there were some wars that got in the way. It happens. Indeed. Jakob Grimm, of course, wrote this huge four-volume book called uh, Teutonic Mythology, uh, which a lot of heathens use. Uh, it's a little out of date, but there's still some really cool stuff in there that you can't find anywhere else. And Grimm noticed that when languages change, sounds will change, and they don't change at random. They change in ways that affect dozens or hundreds of words at the same time. And if you want an example of this happening today, in London, British accents, especially working-class accents like Cockney, there is a tendency to change the sound we write, th, th, into an f sound. So, Lauren, if you ever saw Sasha Baron Cohen's work before Borat, yes, uh, he used to do this British TV show called Da Ali G Show. Yes. And Ali G speaks in this lower-class British accent, and instead of brother, he keeps calling everybody brava. Yeah. You know, B-U-R-V-V-A-H, I guess, brava. And that change from a T-H to an F, you don't just get in brava. People from London, or at least some of them, will say mouth instead of mouth. They'll say it with an F, or teeth. Instead of teeth. Instead of teeth, and, and so on. When that change hits, it hits a whole bunch of words at the same time. You can trace it in parallel. Well, similar to a Boston accent, mm -hmm. where they tend to drop the R's. Right. Or an H, you know. Pock, my kai, hava, ya. Right. Yeah, I, I can't do it. But, but yeah. they, don't, they don't drop R's everywhere. They don't drop them at right. the beginning of words. But, but it's, it, it's pretty consistent across the board yeah. at the end of words. Yeah, an R followed by a vowel. Yes. Or preceded by a vowel, right. sorry, as in ha, but yes. So there's a regularity to this, and you can trace it in multiple words. I'll give you one more, just because I can. I'm assuming some of our listeners know Spanish. So if you look at the Latin word for milk, it's lactum. And in Spanish, of course, it's leche. And you might notice that it looks like the CT combination, kta, in lactum, has become a ch in leche. And then if you go farther, you notice it pops up in a lot more words. Factum in Latin becomes fecha, means fact in Latin. In Spanish, it means date. Noctem in Latin becomes noche in Spanish. Factus, meaning something done in Latin, becomes hecho in Spanish. And in a whole bunch of words, oh, directus becomes derecho, meaning on the right. And in word after word, you find that a CT combination in Latin turns into a ch in Spanish. It's very regular. So what Grimm had noticed in there was where Latin and Greek and Sanskrit had a, a P, mm -hmm. uh, Germanic had an F. Right. So to definitely to uh, pater versus father. Right. Latin and Greek, it's both pater. In English, it becomes father. Pyro and fire. Yeah, I like that Greek one. pyro becomes fire. Even the Greek word poor day and the Latin word perdo correspond perfectly to um, the English word fart. So this leads to Grimm's Law, where there are several, where Proto-Indo-European seems to directly correspond with changes in German language. Right. The short version is saying that your stop content consonants become affricates. Your stops are the ones where you stop the airflow with your lips, your teeth, or the back of your mouth. P, t, ka. And also the uh, labiovelar stop, qua. Qua? Yeah. So P, T, K, and qua in Germanic become F, T, H, H, and H, W. F, F, H, and hua. And once pa, ta, ka, and qua become fa, fa, ha, and hua, that opens a gap. And so Proto-Indo-European B, D, G, and gua, ba, da, ga, gua, turns into Germanic pa, ta, ka, and qua. 
And I don't know how well any of that's going to carry over in the, the microphone. Just know that there's a pretty, to break it down to you at a little less, a higher level, there, Grimm's Law basically says that there's a direct correspondence between this sound in Proto-Indo-European and a another sound in Germanic, and it's consistent across language. Right. So the word for your heart, or of, of your heart, in Latin it's cordis, in Greek it's cardio, as in, you know, cardiovascular or cardio exercise corresponds to heart, where Greek and Latin both have a K sound and a D sound. English has an H sound and a T sound, cardio, heart. Latin pedis and Greek podos correspond to foot, because there you have Latin and Greek P and D turning into F and T. Trace becomes three. Quod in Latin corresponds to English what? Decem in Latin becomes tyhoon in Gothic, which shortens down in English to ten, and so on. You can map this out across hundreds of words. It's a very regular distinction between languages in the Germanic family. That's German, Dutch, English, Old Norse, and Norwegian, and Swedish, and Danish, and Icelandic and then the East German languages, which are no longer spoken. The best known was Gothic. Yeah, the Gothic language died out because nobody wanted to talk with the Goths because they were all very mopey and listened to very depressing music. Oh, Ben. So if there's this proto-language, then it had to have speakers, right? Right. So if you have a common language, generally a common language also speaks to a common culture. Right. So, And presumably they also have a common homeland because in the pre-internet days, you know, you speak your language with people that are close by. You have to actually talk to people. Yeah, astonishing. People I know. can actually talk to, used to talk to each other without doing podcasts. Or, you know, internet. Yeah, yeah, strange. So there are some of these words that can be reconstructed on the basis of Grimm's Law and a bunch of other laws. We can actually reconstruct what the earliest forms of these words were, and people noted that some of them point to aspects of material culture that are the kinds of things that an archaeologist could actually go out and dig up. So we can reconstruct Proto-Indo-European words for gold and for copper, and for silver, but not for iron. Which makes sense. Right. So whoever spoke Proto-Indo-European at least knew about gold, silver, and copper, and maybe used them, uh, but didn't know iron. And that pins down a particular time frame. Iron tends to take longer for people to figure out how to use because you need higher temperatures to smelt it, and you also have to figure out how to add the right amount of carbon so that your iron is neither too soft nor too brittle uh, right. to make things out of. And that takes a while for people to work out. I find it interesting, you know, you have also words for things like wagons and wagon parts, like the wheel, hub, axle, but there's only one word for boat. Right. But nothing for sail or rudder, something that would imply complex long-distance sailing. Right. So maybe they had rowboats or something like that. The route, by the way, was something like now, as in, you know, navigate and navy and things like that come from this route. But yeah, there's no route we can reconstruct for any sailing uh, equipment. On the other hand, we can reconstruct wheel, uh, which would have been quequilo, which ought to remind you of cycle and things yes. like that. And by Grimm's Law, it also turns into wheel. That qua becomes the hua of wheel. We have words for hub, words for axle, words for to carry something by wheeled vehicle. All of those we can reconstruct. So these people were pretty good at wheels, not so good at boats. Which could speak to maybe they were, some, they were an inland-dwelling people and didn't have a need for giant sailing vessels. Right. So we can probably rule out, you know, a culture that does have big sailing vessels is probably not the original speakers. We also have words that refer to animals and plants and geographic features. 
they did have a word for big body of water, so they might have at least known about big lakes or something like that. They had words for summer and winter, so they're not in the tropics and they're not on the tundra. They're somewhere in between. Not that that's very specific. We can also reconstruct words for things like salmon. It would have been something like loxos, uh, related to lox, as in the lox that you put on your bagels with cream cheese. Yes. And um, in particular, one of the arguments that was made was we can reconstruct a root for the beech tree, which would have been something like bahagos. And beaches don't grow absolutely everywhere. They are mostly restricted to Western and Central Europe, although there is also another population of beaches that grows in the Caucasus Mountains. So if they had a word for beach, the thinking is that maybe they lived in a place where beech trees grow. And as reconstructions got better and better, a German linguist named August Schleicher actually tried to compose a little short story in reconstructed Proto-Indo-European. And his original version has been modified a bit. And I think I'm going to attempt to read. Lauren is coming off a little bout of laryngitis, so I'm not even going to try to make her read this. But this is, as of about 20 years ago, uh, the current stab as to what Proto-Indo-European might have sounded like. And it goes a little something like this. Hois quesio ulchnech nechest hekwons speciet Get it? I just love that. <laughs> okay, so if I'm honest with you, if yeah. I were sitting here and I didn't know what you were speaking, I would just assume you're speaking Russian. Because mm. that sounds like my knowledge of Russian. Granted, you speak Russian, actually speak Russian, I don't, but that does sound an awful lot like Russian. It sounds to my ears like we're like English being played backwards. <laughs> like if you took what I just said and played it backwards, it would spell out this song was sung for Satan or something. Okay, yeah, like, I, I'm down with that too. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like Courtney Love. Like what? Courtney Love. Oh, okay. You know, she speaks in a language which looks like English but isn't English. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll take your word for that. Just, uh, just yeah. There's a just go look at her. She she put out a pretty good album back in the '90s, and I haven't really kept up since. Somebody I'll have to tell you about when she stalked me online. Okay. <laughs> and that's a bonus feature for our Patreon. All right. <laughs> I will All tell right. you the story of when I was stalked by Courtney Love online. Okay. By the way, what Schleicher meant was a sheep that had no wool saw horses, one of them pulling a heavy wagon, one carrying a big load, and one carrying a man quickly. The sheep said to the horses, My heart pains me seeing a man driving horses. The horses said, Listen, sheep. Our hearts pain us when we see this. A man, the master, makes the wool of the sheep into a warm garment for himself, and the sheep has no wool. Having heard this, the sheep fled into the plain. It probably loses something in the translation, I suppose. I, okay. And having lived in Scotland for a year once, there's a whole bunch of jokes I could make about human-sheep relations that I probably just really should not. Yeah, we'll... we'll... We'll not relive the nights that you and I went and sang. Yeah. We'll just. Uh, yes. I need a sheep to keep me warm through the night. Let me just tell you what. He will sing this in the middle of Walmart. Mm hmm. He has no fear. It's Walmart. Like, <laughs> no, there are no standards of behavior. It's Walmart. It's true. Okay. So we got a problem, though, Ben. Mm hmm. People get DNA from their parents by definition. Your parents are the people that gave you your genes. Most of the time, you learn your language and your culture from your parents or other relatives. Uh, 
maybe not so much once you go to school, but your basic vocabulary, your basic grammar, ways to use eating utensils and clean yourself after using the potty and things like that. That's all stuff that, in most cases, your parents teach you before you're even going to school. And, of course, in most societies, you know, you may not go to school. At least historically, you don't. So your DNA and your language and your culture get passed on through your parents. And if you look at how they change over time, they tend to change in parallel. People that share DNA will often speak related languages and share features of their culture in common. But there's a ridiculous number of exceptions to that rule, meaning that the history of genes, languages, and cultures do not neatly parallel each other. The reality is extremely messy. The usefulness of that rule is very severely limited. There's lots of times where groups of people that spoke related languages took on very different cultures, or people who spoke very different languages adopted a common culture. If you want one that's not Indo-European at all, the lifestyle of the Plains Indians, the Native Americans of the Great Plains, riding on horses and go harvesting buffalo, uh, things like that. That was adopted by people from very different language families. The language of, you know, the crow has very little to do with the language of the Lakota or the Cheyenne or the Comanche. Those are all, I think, from very different language families, and yet they had a lot of cultural features in common. And the Comanche's closest relatives would be people like the Paiute, uh, who at least historically had a very different way of making a living. They were hunter-gatherers and not horsemen. So the truth is that reality is messy, and as archaeologists like to say, pots aren't people. No, no. Now, there was a guy in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a German by the name of Gustav Kosina, who didn't think so, and who thought that anything that you dug up could be linked with a culture which spoke a particular language. In other words, you could always identify Germans in the archaeological record by the styles of pots that they made, because nobody who didn't speak German would ever make a pot that looked like the pots the Germans made. Not taking into account that there was things like trade and travel and, you know, Sven goes off to raiding and sees a pot and he steals it. Mm-hmm. That that happens. Yeah. Or, you know, Sven learns how to make pots somewhere else and comes back and teaches yeah. uh, people in his tribe. Or Sven goes off raiding and comes back with a um, new girlfriend who makes pots in a different way. But her pots are better, mm-hmm. so everyone starts making them that way. Right, right. So things like this just happen all the time, all over the map. I mentioned Cassina because I've just been reading about this. He died before the Nazis came to power, but his ideas got used a lot in Nazi Germany. So Hitler actually said, the only territory I want is the territory where Germans had lived. And that is why right behind the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis, and in particular moving into the Crimea, archaeologists working for the SS came in right behind the front and started looting every local museum and archaeological site that they could, looking for evidence that Germans had once lived there. Because the assumption was that if you could just find the right style of pot you could prove that this land had always been German territory because you could always tell Germans for many thousands of years by the pots that they made and other artifacts, of course. Well, you know, they say the Germans make real good stuff. Mm, Right. (laughs) Yeah, you can always tell the German pots. They're machined to very high tolerance and they run for 20 years. (laughs) So... You will buy our pot. We have ways of making you buy our pot. And, of course, we now can buy pot in Arkansas. Yeah. But that's another story. That's another story. So this idea that there was some sort of monolithic 
Indo proto Indo European tribe or belief or ethnic group is frankly like just way it's oversimplified and because like everyone you know language religion belief culture is constantly changing due to I mean a bajillion different factors you've got you know encounters with other cultures you've got just you know weather advances in technology I mean the you can look at any culture and you see those changes so it not unlike how we often talk about modern heathenry and you have, you know, when you say, so what kind of heathenry you practice, people tend to not only give you a location, but a time period. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same thing here. It varied drastically over this time frame in which this language existed, which there's not a, a firm number on. Yeah, the rough time frame in which people think of Proto-Indo-European as existing is between about 4500 and 2500 BC. That's 2,000 years. Yeah. You know, a thousand years ago, English was completely incomprehensible to us now. You can't understand Old English without special study. 2,000 years ago, we were all speaking some kind of Proto-Germanic. So our language has changed immensely over 2,000 years and so did whatever, what for simplicity's sake, I'll just call Proto-Indo-European. I have a lurking suspicion that if any actual people from that time period could hear our reconstructed Proto-Indo-European, it would sound something along the lines of, Prithee, what's up, dude? Och, I. Hey, y'all got any of them soap papa lilies? Buenas dias. Yeah, something. That, that's also my grandmother speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Soap papa. Oh, sopapillas? Yeah. Got it. Got so, it. Got it. Soap papa lilies. Right. And yeah, uh, you know, words move from one language to another. Cultural practices move around. And look at the amount of. English words that have made their way into other languages and words from other languages that have migrated into English based on, you know, where something is invented. Yeah. There's evidence that um, Indo-European picked up words from both uh, Semitic languages, which would have been to the south, and Uralic languages to the north, the languages that were the ancestors of Finnish and Hungarian and things like that maybe picked up some things from the languages spoken in the Caucasus. Uh, it's a mess. It's it's spaghetti. It's language, which is right. always a mess. And genes cross boundaries, too. I mean, confronted with the opportunity to mate with an attractive person from a different ethnic group, historically, most people have not said, no, I must keep my genetic heritage pure. They have mostly said, who, 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 baby. Listen, I grew up in a small town, mm -hmm. and let me tell you, the people who moved to said small town were real popular because you weren't a cousin mm -hmm. to someone. Right. You know, the person you grew, you know, this is new and novel and interesting person, mm -hmm. not just, you know, the same person you grew up with and have known since you were born. It's, there's, and there's going to be exchange. You're going to see, you know, you're going to see something like, you know, I mean, you think about how fashion now propagates. I think that's a, a really a good kind of way to, to communicate this. You know, fashion propagates where you see something and you in a magazine or you encounter someone who's wearing something, especially as a woman. And, you know, that wasn't a part of how you dressed before, but now you've seen this and you're like, oh, I like this. I want this. And you go and you integrate that into your wardrobe. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're traveling around. They see this other tribe and I don't know. They've never used a, a spit roast. Okay. And all of a sudden they encounter this tribe that's got a spit roast and they're like, that's pretty genius. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden spit roasts are part of this new, this tribal culture. Right. The pace of change may not have been quite as fast back then as it is now, but right. it certainly did, did change. So with all of those caveats in mind that we can't talk about a proto-Indo-European tribe, at best they were a bunch of people running around speaking changing dialects, where were the speakers of these Proto-Indo-European dialects? Hypotheses have gone from the Arctic Ocean all the way to India. Guy I've mentioned a minute ago, Friedrich Schlegel, claimed in 1808 that the homeland 
was in India and you know all of European culture had basically come out of India. On the flip side, by about 1880, uh, German scholars mostly were arguing that the Indo-European homeland must obviously be Germany. Of course. It really sounds to me like when you get a bunch of Southerners together to talk about where barbecue is the best, mm-hmm. well, clearly it's Texas or it's Kansas City or it's Memphis or it's – it mm. has to be – it's wherever you are is usually the answer. Right. Wherever you are is the only place that does it right. Exactly. Yeah. So clearly the only place where the Aryans could possibly have come from must be northern Germany. And that belief would go on to have some rather – yeah. Uh, bizarre and sad consequences. I think that most of the stuff that I've read in modern research seems to be Persia-ish, mm-hmm. which would be what we would would be the area of Iran, modern-ish. Well, a little north of there. little north, but ish. That's okay. why I'm saying ish. Ish. All right. Well, we know that they had words for mountains and bodies of water. They had words for summer and winter. They would have had roots for things like beavers and wolves and bears, birches and willows. People that wanted to put them in Europe pointed out that they seemed to have roots for beech and salmon. A problem with that is that animal names tend to be unstable, uh, mostly because people are not very careful biologists. Tree names would be another one. I mean, mm. the the number of names for... Colloquial names for a type of tree can be pretty, like, I remember when, of course, this isn't, I don't know if you ever did this, but we had to do our leaf book where we had to go and gather leaves from all these different trees. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget, some of the trees had like six or seven names because they, you know, of course, this back pre-internet, you know, your your mama, you might know this as, a, as an Osage orange, but your mom and daddy might know it as... A bodark. Exactly. So it's... You know, what they called a birch and what another group called a birch may not necessarily mm. be, they may both be similar types of trees as far as, you know, a hardwood, a softwood, whatever, but they may not exactly be the same. The example I use in my classes is uh, what the British call a robin is actually a rather different bird from what Americans call a robin. The similarity is they've both got bright orange breasts, but other than that, they're fairly different. British robins are a lot smaller and they're a symbol of Christmas. Uh, they're not so much in America. We don't put robins on our Christmas cards the way they do in, in Britain. I thought robins were little orphan boys that were adopted by Bruce Wayne. Uh, that too. That okay. too. Okay. Ay, ay, ay. I was going to say that. <laughs> anyway, uh, beginning in 1958, an archaeologist of Lithuanian descent, Maria Gimbutas, uh, begins arguing that the people that spoke Proto-Indo-European languages lived on the grasslands of Eastern Europe, the so-called steppes. Now, the steppes can be traced from Romania all the way to Western China, and she would have placed them in the western part of that steppe belt in what is now the Ukraine and South Russia. And there is an archaeological culture people called the pit grave people, or in Russian, yamnaya. Yamnaya means having to do with pits, that are currently thought to be the likeliest candidate for people speaking Proto-Indo-European dialects between about 3300 and 2700 BC. Hey, I said that sounded like Russian. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, well, there we go. Now, those steps have historically been kind of like a highway. You have yeah. this big belt of unbroken grassland that tends to encourage livestock uh, herding. So you have, you know, people on the stelt, the steps, whether it's the Yamnaya people or the Scythians later or uh, the Huns uh, later or the Turks later than that or the Mongols. And by Huns, we don't mean people who are trying to recruit you into a multi-level marketing company. Wait, what? That's what you call the women who always, like, they message you, Hun, have you ever tried, you know, Oh, my, my, my co-worker who kept trying to sell me Mary Kay all the time? Yeah, or it's, now it's all essential oils and leggings. Oh, But yeah, okay. that's what you call them, Huns. Uh, but Huns? Yeah. Okay. Both because they say the word Hun and also because they kind of remind me of the Huns. Ah, uh, okay. So... Yes, you really should buy our skin cream, and if you don't, we're going to sack your village? 
Pretty much, yeah. It's, okay. it's about right. So and nothing's uh, going to stand between them and the pink Cadillac, right? Pretty much. So they, it's interesting that you know she. You're looking at that era and that time, and okay, so we're slightly north north of Persia, mm-hmm. but um, that is a, a definitely a very mobile culture because, right. and even now, there's. Um, in fact, I just watched a documentary about the pit grave people and their migrations and how they would migrate an entire community mm-hmm. as seasons changed with the herding. And it was really fascinating. Like they would just like, they had it down to a science. It was pretty crazy. What we think is that the Yamnaya people and their predecessors who were a group called the Sredni Strog people started out living mostly in the river valleys. So in the winter you put your herds in the river valleys And in the summer, you can take the herds out onto the open prairie, and they can graze, and they can do something that you can't, which is eat grass and turn inedible grass into very edible meat and milk and leather and things like that. Right. So we can reconstruct a lot of Proto-Indo-European words for herd animals. A horse would be uh, equos, sheep, uh, goats, I believe. And uh, cows, guos. We do think that for at least a long part of the time, they did have settled bases because we can reconstruct a few words for grains and plows and also words for pigs, which you can't really herd over long distances. Right. You've had cowboys, but you've never heard of, you know, pig boys. They're in Fayetteville. Um, Oh, okay. Right. Aside from the University of Arkansas. Um, but yeah, and yeah, they kind of lost their herds this uh, this football season, didn't they? So I think we're going to stop it here, Ben. We got a lot more to cover. All right. As they would say, growing up, our time is almost gone. Mm-hmm. So, just a friendly reminder that you can come find us. We're all over the internet. Did you know that, Ben? Mm-hmm. So, if you want to support us, help us make sure this podcast continues to happen, help us pay our wonderful editor who does a great job, you can visit us on Patreon. We got sneak peeks, gifts, and access to our exclusive Heathen History Facebook group where you can ask us questions and I'll make Ben answer it because I probably don't know. But that's a patreon.com forward slash Heathen History. Todd Kekluos hoist Egrom Puget. Huh? As my mom would say, you do and you'll clean it up. <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash Heathen History for updates. And as always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. Our theme music is Happy Viking by Roller Music. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.